you have a Bible, would encourage you to turn to 2 Timothy, a little book toward the end of the New Testament. Uh, this is our second week in our study called A Lasting Faith, a study through 2 Timothy. And by the way, how exciting to see so many folks baptized over the last three months. It seems like we've had four or five baptism services. I just praise God for the way that He's working uh, in our church and the lives of, of so many here. Uh, well, I don't know how many of you are looking forward to the Winter Olympics, but you know it's kind of been almost forgotten because it was postponed a year because of COVID, and almost uh, you know we haven't talked about it a lot. But I'm starting to get excited about some of the events. I like uh, the downhill skiing. I like the speed skating. Um, I like. I even like the figure skating. I mean, I, I like all of the. Or I guess it's ice skating, whatever it is. I like all this stuff. Uh, to be honest, I've never really understood curling. I watched a couple of videos trying to get up to speed on that. It doesn't make any sense to me, but I'm, I'm looking forward to it anyway. Um, it does. It's not quite as exciting to me as the Summer Olympics, which you know have all the uh, the dramatic finishes and swimming and gymnastics and, and track and field. And you may recall last Summer Olympics, the the U.S. had one of the most highly touted track and field teams ever. You remember this? Uh, they were. Four of the fastest men on the planet running the 4 by 100 meter relay. And of course, they were expected to win it all and to capture gold, and, uh, but they were quickly eliminated. You remember what happened? Uh, they couldn't pass the baton. They couldn't, they couldn't successfully uh, pass the baton between one person to another. And so they were, they were eliminated very early, and they st- everybody was stunned. The whole world was stunned. In fact, the headlines around the world... Uh, they were they read uh, uh, differently, but all sort of captured the same sentiment. Um, USA track and field team stunned by historic struggle to pass to pass the baton. Uh, one of the headlines I remember read: "Botched uh, baton passing leaves U.S. track and field team in limbo." And so it's something that seems so simple, so straightforward but they were unable to do, to execute this simple task. This is the second week, as I mentioned, in our study in 2 Timothy. And as I shared with you last week, this is really about handing down a legacy of faith. Passing the baton, as it were, as it relates to gospel fluency and gospel dependence. Finishing well, not just finishing well, but making sure those behind us who follow us can also finish well. And what parent doesn't want his or her children to grow up knowing God? I mean, very few, I would say. And yet, how are we doing at actually passing down that deposit of the faith, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, of course, in order to pass down the faith, you have to make sure that that we're maintaining the faith ourselves. So it's not just about passing down this deposit, but also cultivating a lasting faith ourselves. You can't pass down something you haven't adequately maintained. And so it's about passing down the faith, but also cultivating a lasting faith. And as I mentioned last week, it's really most at the fundamental level about remembering to whom we belong and what that means every day. So this morning, we're going to talk a little bit about gospel identity from the text. Uh, This whole idea of identity has become a very popular thing among millennials and Gen Z and people of all generations, really. It's why you've seen the influx, the increase in a lot of these personality tests, the Enneagram and Myers-Briggs and so on, looking for ways to describe ourselves. And when we talk about identity in general, 
what we're talking about is what is it that you believe makes you, you? And so you think, well, I don't know how I would answer that. Think about it this way. If you were to, when you introduce yourself to someone for the very first time, someone you've never met before, how do you start? You say, well, you know, I'm so-and-so, I'm, I'm a nurse, I'm an engineer, I'm a teacher, I work in construction. I, what, do you identify yourself according to your vocation? This is a very common thing. Or maybe when you identify yourself to someone you've never met before, you start with describing your family. You say, you know, I'm so-and-so, I'm a mom. I've got four kids at home or five kids or whatever it is, or, or I'm a dad. And so family becomes really the defining feature about you. Now, for a lot of people, what they do is they kind of define themselves according to what they've been through, their past experiences. And so you may have someone who says, introduces themselves like this, well, I'm a, I'm a recovering alcoholic, or I'm, I'm a cancer survivor, or I'm an abuse victim, or I've been through this, or whatever it is. And so for a lot of us, there is a tendency to kind of define ourselves according to what we've been through. We're talking this morning about a gospel identity And what I mean by that is learning to see ourselves as God sees us, those of us who are in Christ. So learning to see ourselves through the lens of this faithful and loving Father who has sent His Son so that we could belong to Him. So what does it mean for those of us who are in Christ, what does it mean to see ourselves the way God sees us? What does it mean to to, to look at ourselves through the lens of the gospel? Uh, this is kind of what we're going to look at this morning, and in particular, the three benefits of a gospel identity. So what are the three benefits of a gospel identity? We're going to cover verses 3 through 7, but let me begin, in case you weren't here last week, we had the weather issue, we had the COVID issue, and so let me begin by reading just uh, verses 1 through 5 of Second Timothy chapter 1. Here reads the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So last week we saw that Paul really anchors his identity in, in his calling, first of all. We saw that in, ver- in verses 1 and 2. So Paul says that he is, he is an apostle uh, by the will of God. So Paul's identity is anchored in his calling, that is to say, he is who he is by the will of God. He hasn't decided sort of willy-nilly or on his own to, to pursue a particular vocation, but he's called by God. And then also according to his purpose, which is to proclaim eternal life in Jesus Christ. And then furthermore, as we saw last week, Paul says that he serves God, verse 3, with a clear conscience. Now, why did Paul have a clear conscience? Why was he not worried about things in his past? We talked about this last week. It wasn't ultimately because he had, what he had accomplished. It wasn't ultimately because what, what he had done or what had been done to him or even what other people said about him. The reason that Paul had a clear conscience, and we looked at a couple of his other letters uh, briefly as well, is because Paul had learned to see himself as God sees him as a recipient of eternal life by faith, as one declared righteous by God's 
uh, decree, as one brought into the kingdom of God, as a member of God's own family. And with that gospel identity, it really didn't matter what anybody else said about him. In fact, as, he, as we saw last week, it didn't even matter what he thought about himself. Paul had put all of his eggs, so to speak, in the gospel basket, and as a result of his confidence in the gospel and this gospel identity, Paul was regularly in prayer. Look at the verse, first, uh, last part of verse 3. As I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. I was with a, a group of engineers last week and uh, we were, I don't know what we were talking about, a variety of things, but then one of the guys said something about um, bugs in the code. And all the other guys, uh, they just erupted with laughter. And I, I, I didn't really get it, so I, I must have had a puzzled look on my face. And one of the guys said, oh, that, don't, that's engineer humor. Don't, don't worry about that. That's engineer humor. I said, oh, that's cool. You know, I, I love it. Um, well, engineers, you know, I love engineers. We have a lot of them. They can look at things from a, a different vantage point at times. Uh, well, biblical scholars, they can also have a unique, uh, even sometimes odd way of looking at things. Um, you wouldn't believe the amount of debate, the amount of ink spilled on whether or not Paul really prayed day and night or whether this was just a hyperbole. The thing is, I don't think it really matters. The point is not to determine the exact number of minutes that the Apostle Paul prayed per day. The point is that he was constantly engaged in prayerful intercession. He was in this ongoing dialogue with his Heavenly Father. This is the way that he lived. I mean, here he is languishing uh, in prison, probably the Mamertine prison in Rome, and he is constantly dialoguing, with you will, talking to his Heavenly Father. Now, that can only happen if a person knows that he or she is known and loved by God. That can only happen if a, if a person feels comfortable going to God. You're not going to constantly go to God or be in this regular uh, intercession with God if, you, if your conscience is not clear, if you feel like God has something against you. But when our conscience is clear and we see ourselves as God sees us, there are no barriers to coming to God. In fact, we actually long to come to Him. So here's, that, here's the first benefit of a gospel identity, our first point this morning. A gospel identity ignites a passion for persistent prayer. If we're honest, I think we have to admit, I mean, it's hard to pray. It's hard setting aside time to pray. And there's so many times when I have all the best intentions, and I'm there in my office, and it's relatively quiet, I mean, until Pastor Chris walks in, then it becomes very loud. But, uh, you know, it's relatively quiet, and I'm trying to pray, but my mind is just all over the place. And I just have the hardest time thinking, the hardest time focusing. It's hard. Sometimes I think it would be easier to, to dig ditches in the Alabama clay or to hang drywall than it is to pray. It's just hard to stay focused. But it's a lot harder to pray. In fact, it's practically impossible if we believe that God is against us. If we believe that God has, he's, is out to get us or that there's something between us, you know, that we, we can't really go to Him. Maybe we feel like that God is looking down on us with disapproval and blaming us for something. It becomes very hard to go to God in prayer if that's the case. Have you ever had someone in your life that uh, you just knew was mad at you? You just knew they were upset. And, and maybe for a good reason. Maybe, you've wrong, maybe you'd wronged them secretly. Maybe 
Maybe you'd sinned against them in a very public way, or maybe you'd sinned against them in a way that just came to light. And so you knew that person was mad at you. Well, how do you feel about that person? How eager are you to see that person? Not very eager, are you? In fact, you want to do everything you can to avoid that person. You see that person, you go the other way. You find out that person's in the bathroom, you go to the other bathroom. You you don't want to be around that person. Well, imagine if we feel that God is against us. Imagine if we feel that God is angry at us. That there's just something in between us. Something that's come between us. We don't want to We don't want to go to God. I heard a guy just last week say that because of something he'd done nine years ago, he still didn't feel comfortable going to God. Several years ago, I had a man approach me after a worship service, and it's a guy I hadn't seen in a long time, had no idea where he'd been. I was unable to to reach him. um, He came up to me, and he said he'd been too embarrassed to come to church, way too embarrassed to worship or pray to God because of a pattern of sexual sin that he'd gotten caught up in. And when I tried so desperately to assure him that if he was in Christ, if he's really trusting in Jesus' cross work alone, then God didn't see him as a pornographer. God saw him as a forgiven son that God actually longed to be with and longed to hear from. Well, because Paul knew that he was right with God, he knew that God was not angry with him because of Christ. Because Paul understood that he was covered with the righteousness of Jesus who died for Paul's sins, Paul's conscience was clear, and as a result, he prayed constantly. Maybe not every minute of every day, but he was in regular dialogue, ongoing intercession with God. And if you're in Christ this morning, if you've repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus, then you enjoy the same privilege. You enjoy the same status as the Apostle Paul. God wants to hear from you. He loves to hear from you. And He loves answering your prayers. No sin you've committed can ever turn God against you. Now look at verses 4 and 5 again. Paul says, As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. So Paul is constantly praying for Timothy, and as he thinks back on their relationship, and and probably when they said goodbye to each other, either in Miletus or in, in Ephesus, he remembers that tearful goodbye, and you know, it's probably one of those things where you're walking away, you hate to even look back because it's so emotional. And he remembers that tearful goodbye. He's constantly praying for Timothy. And he says, I really want to see you again. I long to see you so that my joy will be complete, so that I can have joy again, right? In fact, even later in this letter, chapter 4, he'll tell Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. Now, I think it begs the question, how did they reach that level of friendship? Sociologists say that in our lives, the the average person will meet some 10,000 people. That's a lot of people, when you think about it, in, in, in a lifetime. Um, but out of those 10,000 people, it's also argued that we'll only develop deep, meaningful, lasting friendships with about six to eight, I mean, maybe, maybe 10. That's kind of sad, isn't it? 10,000 people we interact with, we, we meet and only have lasting, real deep, authentic friendships with six to eight. In his uh, biography, His Way, 
Frank Sinatra recounted on just the, he, he and he, by his estimation had met tens of thousands of people. Now, let's just say 100,000 people, I don't know. And yet he said, for, for some reason, real friendship had evaded him, had escaped him. He said, over that time, meeting 100,000 people, there were maybe five or six people that he counted as trusted friends. It's a pretty, it's a harrowing thought, really, that you go through life and you, we end up with such few friendships. And I mean, it's never been easy to make authentic, lasting friendships. And of course, things have gotten exponentially worse with COVID. In a recent article in The Atlantic, uh, Amanda Mole says this, the pandemic has evaporated entire categories of friendship and by doing so depleted the joys that make up a human life and buoy human health. Now, if you get the Gospel Coalition Weekly, you, you saw this article was highlighted in that email. But it's hard to sustain deep friendships. It's always been that way. And yet Paul and Timothy, we see this Throughout the, the first and second Timothy, they had this deep, authentic, trusting, lasting friendship. How did that come about? Well, a little background. Paul took several missionary journeys. Uh, we, we saw from our seven-month-long study through the book of Acts, Paul sent, uh, did several missionary church planting journeys. And on one of those church planting trips, as he was walking through this little town called Lystra, which is in modern-day Turkey, he met a young man named Timothy. Timothy was probably 19 or 20 at the time. Paul was close to 50, if not 50, so there was a 30-year age difference, but they struck up this unique friendship. Timothy had a Greek father and a Jewish mother, so following Jesus would actually have been against his father's wishes, but Timothy did have a rich heritage, as I just read about, passed down from his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, both of whom knew the, the Scriptures well. So Timothy knew the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, but he didn't know Jesus. But he strikes up his friendship with Paul, begins traveling with Paul throughout the Greco-Roman world. They're talking, and, and you know, they're, they're talking about everything, I'm sure, sharing life together. But through that, Timothy came to faith in Jesus and be, became persuaded that joining Paul on these missionary journeys was what God was calling him to do. And over time, Paul became like a spiritual father to Timothy. Deep, deep friends. In fact, Paul will call Timothy, in the opening of this letter, my beloved child. Now, many of you understand how this happens, how a, a spiritual relationship can become even closer to a, a biological relation, especially those, those family members who are not believers. And it's in those relationships developed over time that, that much of our discipleship actually happens. I mean, much of our discipleship is actually caught as much as it is taught. So we begin to model and imitate the people that we spend our time around, and those believers who are a little further along in their faith. So Paul and Timothy were very close, and what drew them together, maybe more than anything else, was their faith in Jesus. They were united in Christ. They were united in the gospel. And the very thing that, that was the very thing that fostered a depth of relationship, the gospel that is, by allowing them to be honest with each other about their own personal failures and to believe the best about the other person. Here's the second benefit of a gospel identity, our second point. A gospel identity allows us to acknowledge the worst about ourselves and believe the best about others. We saw last week this very fascinating sort of spiritual progression or digression, whatever you want to say, the Apostle Paul. Early in his ministry, he says he identified, I'm Paul the Apostle. And then a little bit later on, Paul, the least of the Apostles. 
And then a few years later, he is Paul, the least of God's people. And then just a few years before he would be killed, Paul, the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners. So as Paul matured, as he grew in his faith, as God sanctified him by the Holy Spirit, he became more and more aware of his own failures, his own sinfulness, his own shortcomings, but then better able to rest in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so there was an openness about his shortcomings. He was able to share his own shortcomings because he knew that he wasn't defined by them. What defined him was that he belonged to Jesus Christ, body and soul, in life and in death. And the more that, again, the more that he understood the power and the sufficiency of Christ's work on the cross, the more open Paul was, the more transparent he was about his own failures. But, interestingly and paradoxically, the more Paul rested in the gospel, the more he began to assume the best about others, especially those who were part of the household of faith. Now, he was honest about them. He didn't sugarcoat them. In fact, in this letter alone, uh, multiple times he will talk about, he will call out people by name who have perverted the gospel, who are denying the resurrection of Jesus. But incredibly, Paul's pattern was to see the best in others. So think about this. Paul hasn't seen Timothy. Paul's in prison in Rome. He's awaiting his execution. He hasn't seen Timothy in at least a year and a half, maybe two years. We don't know for sure. And what he does here, as he gets these reports while he's in prison, is things are not going very well in the church that Timothy pastors, the church in Ephesus. False teachers have come in. Heretics are garnering a, garnering a following. And I'm sure they're asking people, asking, where's Timothy in all this? Why doesn't Timothy do anything? Why isn't he leading more strongly? And yet Paul, he, he doesn't doubt Timothy. He's confident in Timothy's faith, verse 5. He calls it sincere, a faith that he says dwells deeply in Timothy, verse 5. See, when our identity is rooted in the gospel, that is to say we see ourselves as God sees us, redeemed sinners, we can speak openly about our own failures while at the same time giving grace to those around us. We learn to give others the benefit of the doubt. In fact, this same Paul will say in a letter they wrote a little bit earlier, 1 Corinthians that this is really the essence of love. 1 Corinthians 13, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In the words of the theologian Charles Hodge, love always trusts. It is not suspicious, but readily credits what people say in their own defense. When Janine and I first got married at 22, I was way too cynical, and she was way too naive. Uh, now, God has grown us both in this area. I'm less cynical, and she's a lot more cynical now after 20 years of being a pastor's wife. But, um, but you know, God grew us in the But we were 22, and, and to be honest with you, I don't know if it's because of my personality defects or my upbringing or whatever, but I, I, did, I hardly believed anything someone said to me. I mean, I was always doubting. And Janine just accepted what anybody said is true. We went in, we were, we were, a few years later, we were 25, we had purchased our first home and we wanted to buy some new carpet. The people we bought it from had this stained carpet. So we went to this flooring store and the sales guy came over and, and, we said, and I said, hey, we just want to, we just want to kind of look around and, and, and see. We don't really know what we want. He said, oh, that's fine. But he kept following us. And then a few minutes later, he said, uh, and I said to him, I said, you know, I think we're going to, 
I don't think we're going to make a purchase today, but you know, if we do make one from this place, we'll, we'll get it from you. He said, I want you to know I, I, I lost my wife in a motorcycle accident just a few weeks ago. Of course, you know, Janine was just like crushed. Like, I, like that's horrible. Now, what are you doing working so soon? I, I, my heart broke for the guy too. I, mean, I felt horribly for him. So we talked with him a little bit about that, and I said to him again, yeah, hey, we're gonna, I think we're going to come back. We're going to grab, grab lunch. And he said, I want you to know I've got stage four cancer, and I probably won't live long. Now, at this point, I'm starting to think, I don't know about this. Like, this, is, this doesn't really sound right. Janine just, like, devastated at this point. Just anything you want us to buy, carpet, tile, wallpaper. I don't know what we were buying back then, but whatever it is. And I said to him again, I said, man, that is, oh my, that's horrible. That is devastating. I said, well, I want you to know if we, if we get anything from this store, I mean, I, we'll come back and talk to you. He said, you need to know I'm an orphan. I've never met my parents. <laughs> I'm, at this point, Janine is like sobbing. I'm like, all right, that's enough. Right? Even if that's true. I mean, why are you telling us all this? I mean, I, I just didn't believe it. I mean, I didn't believe it. And I, that's the way I, that was my, my, again, a natural sin struggle that I had that God, by His grace, has been chipping away. When God, when Paul says that love believes all thing, things, he's not saying that true love makes a person a gullible fool who lacks wisdom and discernment, or that love makes a person believe anything. Um, what Paul is saying is that true love, biblical love, assumes the best about another person rather than the worst. It trusts rather than doubts. It gives the object of that love the benefit of the doubt. So when a fellow church member says something to you that you don't really understand, do you assume that he's trying to put you down? Do you assume that she's trying to get in a dig? When someone drops the ball on something very important to you and just fails to follow through on a commitment, do you assume that they just don't care about you or the task? Or do you give them the benefit of the doubt? When someone says something to you that really hurts, it stings, do you assume that you do immediately assign motive to that person and assume that they're trying to destroy you? Or do you weigh it carefully and Maybe take some of it and maybe discard the rest, but do you assume that the one who said it had your best interest at heart? I read something the other day from one of the Puritans that really stuck out to me. Uh, this Puritan said that, that spiritual maturity is evidence. One evidence is this. We offend people less and we are less offended by people. Do you find yourself to be easily offended when you're not invited to something, when you don't get your, you, you, someone says something to you that stings, when you don't understand something, whatever, do you find yourself easily offended? Or are you willing to give people the benefit of the doubt? At this point, again, Paul hasn't seen Timothy in over a year, maybe two. He's in prison while Timothy is in Ephesus trying to lead a fractured church, but Paul doesn't doubt Timothy's resolve. He doesn't doubt his faith. In fact, he encourages Timothy toward a greater resolve. Look at verses 6 and 7. Paul says, for this reason, what's this reason? Well, it's the, the sincere faith of Timothy handed down from his mother and grandmother. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, 
but of power and of love and of self-control. Now, what does Paul mean here and why does he say it? Well, when Timothy's pastoral gifts were recognized and he was ready to be sent out, he was ordained by the Apostle Paul as Paul and the elders laid hands on Timothy and Timothy was set apart unto God for a special work. Now, it wasn't the laying on of hands by Paul or the elders uh, that gave Timothy his gift. It was the laying on of hands that confirmed God's calling on Timothy. So Paul didn't, Paul didn't zap Timothy with a spiritual gift. He didn't, sort of, he didn't put his hands on and give Timothy the Holy Spirit. Um, the Holy Spirit was at work in Paul, and it was that gifting of the Holy Spirit that Paul and the elders confirmed by the laying on of hands. When I was ordained in, for pastoral ministry in 2001, I, I had to sit for four hours, four hours one morning, and there were 12 men, most of, them who, most of whom had uh, doctoral degrees, who grilled me on everything from sin, salvation, baptism, uh, the end times. And, you know, it, was a, it was four hours of this. Um, after that experience, I would then refer to those uh, as the 12 angry men. Um, they weren't really angry, but they were, they were actually very kind and affirming. But they took very seriously what they were doing. And for good reason. Their job was to confirm or deny that God had called me to pastoral ministry. And at the end of that four hours, we had a lunch and came back and they, by God's grace, they confirmed God's calling on my life. They affirmed that and I was grateful for that. Where I sometimes, I sometimes look back on that experience as a, a real pivotal moment in my life. This was the evidence of God's specific call on my life. And in a season of ministry like we're in today, I mean, uh, one, one search firm, Vanderblumen, says that 2021, they called the year of transition, more people than ever before by their estima- estimation. More pastors dropped out of vocational ministry in 2021 than ever before. Tom Rayner, who does some studies in Baptist circles, confirmed that. And so when I think about times like this where you know, we have a million things to disagree on, right? A million things to debate and, and to blame each other for. I, I go back to that and I find encouragement in, in that ordination. Uh, one New Testament scholar advises that for every pastor. Donald Guthrie writes this, Every Christian minister needs at times to return to the inspiration of his ordination to be reminded not only of the greatness of his calling but also of the adequacy of the divine grace which enables him to perform it. Indeed, every Christian worker engaged in however small a task requires assurance that God never commissions anyone to a task without imparting a special gift appropriate for it. Now, this is true not just to pastors, of course. This is true for every one of us. When God gives us a task to complete, when God calls us to something, He gives us the grace to do it. So Paul wants Timothy to return to his calling. Things are really bad where he's serving. And he wants Timothy to get inspiration, so to speak, from his ordination where God's calling on him was affirmed by other godly men. He tells Timothy in verse 6 to fan into flame the gift of God. So Paul wants wants Timothy to to pour fuel on that spirit-imparted gift. In the words of the great Baptist theologian Carl F.H. Henry uh, God, uh, Paul wants Timothy to preach and evangelize like a man on fire, like a man filled with passion, a man who uh, cannot wait to speak of the good news of the gospel. But it does make a question, why this a- admonition? 
you've ever heard any pastor talk about Timothy, you've probably heard that Timothy was a timid, shy, and fearful man. But the Bible never says that. This is based on an assumption that people make when they read Paul's encouragement here, but frankly, I don't think Timothy was timid at all. I don't think he was afraid. I don't think uh, that he was timid. In fact, one of Paul's, in one of his other letters to the Philippians, Paul says about Timothy, I have no one else like him. There's nobody this courageous, nobody this loving, nobody this bold. So why the instruction to fan into flame the gift of God? Well, again, Timothy's in the middle of this very, very difficult season. He's worn out, constantly fighting with people. You ever been in a situation like that where you feel like all you're doing is arguing and debating and defending yourself? It's exhausting. Timothy's probably just barely hanging on in terms of his ministry. And what Paul says to Timothy is actually a word of encouragement or instruction, although it may feel like correction. He's telling Timothy, you were chosen by God for this. You have been anointed by God. You have been called and gifted by God. You have the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the Helper, the Paraclete, the one that Jesus promised. You have Him. Your standing with God is secure because of Jesus, whom you proclaim. So don't shrink back. I know you're exhausted, but don't give in. Rely on the Spirit. Now, how does Paul know that Timothy will receive it? Again, it goes back to this idea of gospel identity. Here's a third benefit of a gospel identity, our final point. A gospel identity enables us to receive instruction and correction without being destroyed because our standing with God is secure. For some people, a word of instruction, especially a word of correction, it practically destroys them. Because that means that they haven't been doing it right all along. That means that they haven't been doing things perfectly. And the thought of that is just too much for them. But the reality is, and the Scriptures are clear on this, we are all sinners. We have all fallen infinitely short of God's standard of perfection. We all violate God's law all the time. Even when we do something good, our motives are often stained with selfishness, a desire to be seen, a desire to be recognized. And so the, the, the reality is, at least from the Scripture, is that we're all sinners. In fact, we're born separated from God under His curse, the perfect blame shifters, just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, and as a consequence, deserving of God's wrath. But the gospel enables us to receive instruction and even correction because it tells us that even though we are sinners, even though we have fallen short of God's standard of perfection, even though we give in to the same temptations a hundred times over and over again, Jesus actually died for those sins. And it gets even better, Jesus was perfectly obedient for us. And when we put our faith in Jesus, God looks at us the same way He looks at Jesus. So we can be real about ourselves. We can be honest about our struggles. Look, we're not fooling anybody anyway. There's nobody who thinks we're perfect. There's nobody who thinks we've got it all together. We don't have to pretend to have it all together because Jesus did have it all together for us. 
when we fail to take advantage of these you know, God-given opportunities to share our faith and to tell someone else about Jesus, God actually counts Jesus' obedience in that area as our very own. Jesus was faithful in sharing the gospel every time. He was perfect at it. So when we fail to take advantage of those opportunities that God puts right in our face, and this has happened to me so many times, someone has even asked a leading question, and I've not taken the time or the effort to go into and share with them the hope that I have in Christ. But when we fail to do that, fail to share the gospel, we remember that God looks at us through the lens of Christ, who always share the gospel perfectly. Again, when we give into temptation, we remember that Jesus resisted temptation in every way on our behalf. And when we trust in Him, God sees that perfect obedience as ours. He was tempted in every way, yet without sin, the writer of Hebrews says. And Jesus' resistance to temptation is credited to us by faith. When our ministry is not going the way we want it to, when things in our family are not turning out the way that we'd hoped, when we've made a meal of it, just, just had one of those days, you know, we've just hurt people with our words, been harsh or unloving, those failures don't define us. What marks us, what makes us who we are, is that we are children of God bought with a price, the life and death of God's Son, His life for ours, His death in our place. And as we began to see, and of course the Holy Spirit, it's, it requires the Holy Spirit's help with this. As we begin to see ourselves the way that God sees us, those of us who are in Christ, who've turned to Jesus by faith, we begin to see that God welcomes us as sons or daughters to Him. God's not up in heaven holding our sins against us. God has not created this uh, sort of metrics by which we're up one day and down the next in His uh, perspective or his love for us. When we begin to see things the way that God sees us, we begin to embrace a gospel identity. It ignites us in prayer. It allows us to be honest about our own failures and to believe the best about others. And it allows us to receive instruction and correction without spiraling downward because our, our standing with God is secure because of the work of Christ. These are just three of the many benefits of a gospel identity. May God help us to rest in those today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're so inclined to evaluate ourselves according to our own performance and our own sacrifice and our own obedience and our own prayer lives. Father, I pray this morning you'd help us. I pray by your grace and through your spirit you enable us to really fully grasp who we are in Christ, the significance of this union with Christ. And I want to pray for that person who's here this morning who's outside of Christ, who's never really repented of his or her sins and, and turned to Jesus in faith, who's not trusting in the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would cause it to be so that Today is the day of salvation for someone. And I pray for those who are just worn out, spiritually exhausted, 
may be wondering what the future holds for them. I pray that you would comfort them this morning. I pray that you would pour out the work, the comforting work of your spirit. I pray that you would allow them to experience the nearness of your presence in such a way that they are flooded with confidence in you. A reminder of your love for them, the assurance of your grace. And Father, I pray this morning that you would, for all of us, that you would meet us where we are and you would minister to us so that we leave here changed. The greater love for you, a greater love for neighbor, and a greater dependence upon the finished work of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.